Go ahead and have a seat. And do me a favor if you can, track down a Bible and get with me to Acts chapter 10. We're doing a series right now going through some middle portions of the book of Acts and we're thinking carefully about what it means to be the church in this unusual season. And there are some important lessons for us there in, in uh, the middle of the book of Acts. It helps us to kind of navigate, okay, the early church had to figure out how to do life and ministry in a season that was filled with hostility and persecution and unique challenges with meeting spaces and, and, uh, and even having opportunities to be together with other believers. All of that stuff was going on for them, and so we're learning from them. But here in Acts chapter 10, uh, and, and then next week as we get into chapter 11, we're going to see some of these kind of preconceived ideas that the people of God had. We're going to see some of those begin to be challenged and for, for us to consider what does it look like for the mission to move forward. And so we're going to read Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 44. It's a long one, um, but I believe in the word of God, and I believe that uh, scripture is powerful and I believe that we should follow what the word says when it says devote yourself to the public reading of scripture. And so we're going to do just that. We're going to read uh, 44 verses, then we'll pray and we will get to work. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following days, they were on their journey and approaching the city. Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. 
a holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or even to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising objection. May I ask, why have you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even on Gentiles, for they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we ask right now that you would take this scripture and bring it to life in our hearts. Help us to hear your voice loud and clear. And Lord, would you use this time to speak over us what is true and what is faithful. Help us as believers to live in step with your Holy Spirit. So we commit this time to you, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's kind of reframe the story so we understand what we're talking about. 
Let's ask, what is the point of the story? Why is it told and what is it intended to accomplish? And then finally, let's look at lessons that this story teaches us. So the story really is about an unlikely meeting. It's about a meeting between people who normally, ordinarily would not come into contact with each other. Peter, an apostle, a a Jewish individual, and Cornelius and his household, Gentiles. Now, Peter says this doesn't normally happen. In fact, it's against our law. It's against our customs for us to associate or even to spend time with Gentiles. But nonetheless, God is coordinating this incredible meeting between these different individuals. And and it happens in response to multiple words from the Lord. So Cornelius is praying and God speaks over him. And he says, I want you to go and send for this individual. I want you to get Simon Peter and have him come back and preach to you. And Peter has a vision. He's, he's, uh, you know, up on the top of something and he's praying and he gets hungry and he falls into a trance and God begins to show him this vision. And and this uh, a vision of a sheet with all these different kinds of animals. And he's got some dietary restrictions because of his belief system and his upbringing. And he goes, I'm not going to eat anything like that, Lord. And God says, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And so Peter goes, the men show up and he goes with them. He lands in the house and he begins this preaching ministry of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and fulfillment of the word of God, even early on from the prophets, that by faith in him, you would be forgiven of your sins. And they respond with faith and obedience and the Holy Spirit falls on them and and they begin speaking in different languages. And it's a really incredible Event. It's a really incredible story and it's so important that it gets 48 verses here and it gets another 18 in the next chapter. It's so significant that Luke, the author of Acts, records it twice. He tells the story and then he retells the story. And so there's something here for us. So what is the point of this event? What, why is it here? Why is it in scripture? Why is it significant for us today? Here's the point as I see it. The same gospel that was effective in Jerusalem is the same gospel that's effective in Caesarea. See, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, it doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It goes everywhere. The message of the gospel is transformative for all peoples. And what was effective in Jerusalem is now going to be effective in Caesarea and beyond. So Jesus wasn't messing around when he told his disciples you will be my witnesses. And what does he say? This is chapter one, verse eight. This is the the framework of the whole book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And the book of Acts follows that outline. You've got ministry in Jerusalem, one to eight. You've got ministry in Judea and Samaria, nine to 13-ish. And then you've got ministry to the ends of the earth as missionaries are sent out. Jesus was not messing around. The message of the gospel is for all peoples. It doesn't have a type. It doesn't have a preference for the kind of individuals who need to hear it and respond to it. And so messengers of the gospel need to be aware of our biases. We need to be aware of the things that prevent us from being engaged in the mission of God. We need to be aware that God has a plan that's actually way better than than any of us could dream up. And it includes us being willing to cross cultural barriers and ethnic barriers and and other barriers in order to see that the gospel is well-received by other individuals. So 
The gospel message is for all people. So let's spend some time now looking at some lessons that we can learn then about ourselves. Now I'm going to call these lessons in prejudice. Uh, things that we have a bias toward that lean toward our people and lean against or opposed to different people. Let's define the term. Uh, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, puts it like this. Prejudice is an attitude of hostility directed at an individual, a group, a race, or their supposed characteristics. Does that sound familiar? Prejudice. It's an attitude of hostility directed at other people or their supposed characteristics. Now, I'm choosing this word because I want you to know something. I'm trying to offend everybody. Uh, this week, somebody was talking to me and they're like, I really appreciate your preaching during this season. I love how you are really getting after my enemies. I thought to myself and I had to bite my tongue. Okay, my preaching during this season, uh, yeah, yes, I was speaking into some of these things, but I've been very general in the way that I talk about things because everyone's included in this. When we talk about prejudice, I'm talking about all of the hostility and all of the division and all of the things that we're experiencing in our world right now. And I'm trying to say, there is something that maybe we need to consider. Maybe there's something in us that needs to be evaluated. Maybe our biases need to be critiqued. Maybe our prejudices need to be evaluated. And maybe we need to begin to wonder if we are actually on the side of God in the work that he's doing in the world. So we, the church, have an incredible opportunity right now. As I see it, this might be the most divided, partisan, hostile time in recent history. And you can, you can sense that in, in conversations. I can't get through, I haven't had a conversation uh, in, in recent weeks where it hasn't gravitated in one way or, or another to some hostile topic. Right? And somebody has such a passionate opinion about the things that are going on. But man, this is a moment for the church to do something different. To live up to our high calling. To be the people that Jesus intends for us to be. He tells us that we are supposed to be people who are making peace. In his great and famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. The church has an opportunity to have a very distinct voice in a very hostile culture. We can be people who are making peace. But instead, what I find all too often by Christian leaders and Christian individuals is not the making of peace, but the disruption of it. We need to be careful with how we are dealing with the world right now, but we have this incredible opportunity in front of us. So let's get to work with these five different lessons. Number one, overcoming your prejudice will require nothing less than a work of God. I do not think I'm going to stand up here and persuade you. I don't think you're going to walk away today and go, man, Cor, he's, he's a sharp dude. And he made me think about all these things that I had believed coming into the day today. And now I just view the world differently. He was so persuasive, so compelling. No, I don't think that's going to happen. But here's what I believe could happen. The Holy Spirit could do a work in your heart that would change you. And that's what I want. I want for you to be changed by the power of of the gospel, and I believe that your prejudice is something that is really hard to get to. Ajit Fernando is the director of Youth for Christ in Sri Lanka, and um, fascinating dude. I've followed his ministry for a handful of years, and I always learn a lot from him because he's in such a different context and different environment 
than we are, but his ministry is incredible. But living there in Sri Lanka, it's a land with caste system with different races and ethnicities and different ways of dealing with each other. And there's a lot of hostility there. So he puts it like this. He says, living in a land of ethnic strife and struggling with the question of feeling for one's race and the other's race in a time of conflict, I've come to realize that prejudice is often one of the last things touched by the process of sanctification. I know that was kind of confusing. Let me explain what I think he means there. You can be a mature believer and still hold some very strong biases and have incredible prejudice against people who aren't like you. And he's noting as a Christian leader in an environment where he's dealing with not just a you know, political cycle, but, but you know, decades of this is how it is. There's ethnic strife here. He's saying, this might be one of the last things that Jesus reforms in your life. This is something that will take a work of God to overcome. It was true of Peter. It took all kinds of different things. Look at the amount of energy that's given to overwhelming Peter with this reality. Peter, you have a bias against people who aren't like you and God is going to persuade him. But look at what it takes. It takes multiple angel visitations, angels speaking to him directly, showing him a vision and saying in direct opposition, do not call something unclean that I've made clean. God has to speak directly to him, not only to him, but to Cornelius as well. Cornelius is told to go to Joppa to retrieve Peter. Now, this is an interesting thing to me. It's a little aside, but where else do you find Joppa in the Bible? Joppa is the port city that Jonah goes to to run from God. What happened there? Do you guys remember? Jonah's a prophet of God, and God says to Jonah, Hey, I want you to go to the great city of Nineveh and preach, it, preach against it, for its wickedness has come up against me. And Jonah goes, I don't want to do that. And we find out why. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says in, in his book, in the book of Jonah, he says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. I knew that if you sent me there, there was a chance that by my preaching against them, they would hear and respond with faith and you would relent from sending calamity. Here's the problem. Jonah is a racist. I know that's strong language, but it, it, it shows up in the storyline because at the end of the book, what do we find him doing? He's sitting outside the city and he's angry and he says it. He's angry because he's waiting for God to pour out wrath and destruction on these awful people and it doesn't happen. And God looks at him and he says, what's your problem, dude? And he says, I'm angry enough, I wanna die right now. When you have that sort of animosity toward other people, it's, it's, it's a result of a broken heart, a faulty heart. So Joppa is the place where a prophet of God goes to run from God, to get on a boat going the opposite direction. But here's what we have in our story. God is redeeming that location. While one prophet runs away from God and the call to move toward racial reconciliation with another group, Peter receives that word there in Joppa and goes. God is redeeming the situation. Now, um, Peter gets to go and he's preaching and this is really incredible. He's preaching and he doesn't get to finish his message. Look at it in verses 44 and 45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. 
So here's what's happening. He's preaching his, his sermon and he's coming to the conclusion, but he doesn't get to say the conclusion. So preaching 101, this is what they teach you. I'm not great at practicing it. They say, you got to have a strong introduction and a strong closing. Make sure you do a good job there. If you start out well, you'll gain attention. If you end well, people will be happy with you. It's like flying on a plane. You have a good takeoff and a good landing. If it's bumpy in the middle, people don't care. But they want to make sure you got a good takeoff and a good landing. So he gets to his conclusion and he doesn't get to finish because he's distracted, severely distracted. So last week, I'm up here preaching and I've worked with teens for forever. So I'm really good at just punching through distractions. But last week, I heard either a small kid or a baby goat while I was preaching, coming from right up there. And it caught my attention. Now we're at the tree farm and there's a good chance it's a baby goat. So I hear a scream of what I perceive to be a baby goat. And I think to myself, man, that's weird. Should I just stop and acknowledge that that just happened? I'm like, okay, no, we'll just keep pressing on. Now, when Peter's preaching his message, something happens, but it's so disruptive. He doesn't just punch through it. It is Pentecost round two. The Holy Spirit of God falls on his hearers and they begin to speak in different languages. God is doing what he did in Jerusalem, but now he's doing it in Judea and Samaria. There's, a new, there's some Gentiles now who are experiencing the outpouring of the Spirit of God on them. Sermon's done, right? He's, he doesn't get to make his strong closing. He doesn't get to make his altar call. God did the work and he just sits down. So he's experiencing all of these different circumstances that are overwhelming him to the point now where he's able to say, verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Or in verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of being baptized with water. They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Here's what I'm trying to point out. For Peter to overcome his prejudice against Gentiles, it took an awful lot of work. But God was relentless. God was overwhelming him with evidence that he should not look at another group of people and call them something that God does not label them. He should not look at another group of people and say of them that they are unworthy of his time or his energy or unworthy of the gospel message that he's been commissioned to preach. So this is for us then. It's going to take a lot of work to overcome our prejudice, but, but let's begin to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work. Here, let me ask a question. Who are the people you are most likely to dismiss right now? Get them in your mind. Who are the people right now that you are most likely to exclude right now? Because you do not appreciate the things that they believe or teach or say or do. Who are those people? And let me ask some follow-up questions. May it be that God doesn't share your animosity toward them. Is it possible that you have a, a, a disdain for them, a hatred for them? that maybe God doesn't share. And then here's my final follow-up question for this point. Could it be that God is doing a supernatural, supernatural work right now to soften your heart toward them? Maybe God is doing something to make you reconsider. Maybe he's doing all these different things in your life to get you to this moment where you might say, I had some, I had some ideas before, I had some biases before. I had a prejudice against these people before, but maybe that isn't right. Secondly, here's the second lesson. When we embrace our prejudices, we exclude good people. 
When we allow for our biases to be on open display, we actually miss out on dealing with people made in the image of God who have a resident goodness in them. Look at the way that Cornelius is explained over and over and over again in the text. Cornelius was a good dude. The Bible spills a lot of ink to suggest as much. In verse 2, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and he prayed regularly. He was a, he was a spiritual individual. He was pursuing of God. There was something good in him. And the angel says as much when the angel speaks over him. It affirms his goodness and his prayers and his almsgiving and all of that. Then in verse 22, when the men show up and they explain who they're there on behalf of, they reply, we've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's righteous and God-fearing. He's respected by all the Jewish people. And the holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house. So over and over and over again, we're being told that Cornelius is good. He's good in a variety of different ways. And one of the things that I'm noticing is that when we embrace our prejudices, when we follow through on kind of those commitments that we have, that we don't deal, my customs tell me I don't deal with people like you. I don't associate or dine with people like you. What am I missing out on? I'm missing out on something good. I'm missing out on the ability to spend time with somebody who might teach me something. Now, the goodness of Cornelius is fascinating to me. I, I don't think he's a Christian yet. I think he becomes a Christian in this story. In chapter 11, verse 14, it describes that, how he, came, he became a Christian when the message through which Peter preached, Cornelius and his household were saved. Now, here's why I'm pointing this out. If the Bible seems to be saying that if we draw some boundaries according to our bias, our prejudice, if we draw boundaries according to those things, we can miss out on interacting with good people who aren't even believers yet. But then I was thinking, how much more tragic is it when we draw our boundaries around something and we exclude people because we don't like what they're about and they're actually brothers and sisters in Christ? How much more tragic is that when, when we are putting people out of fellowship because they don't look like us, they don't think like us, they don't behave like us, they don't interpret the cultural, cultural events the same way that we do, and we therefore do not like them. That is unfortunate. So here's what I want to encourage us to do. I want you to recognize that there are people out there from which you can learn a great deal, and they're different from you. And I think one of the things that we should be willing to do in this season is spend time with them. Whatever that looks like, I know that there are restrictions against our, our ability to do things like this, but we should spend time with people who are different from us with the expectation that we might learn something. Instead of just categorically writing them off and saying, I want nothing to do with them, let's try to understand why is it that you think that way? Why is it that you're passionate about those things? I believe that you're a human individual made in the image of God and there's an intrinsic dignity and goodness in you and I actually might need to learn something from you. Let's be the kind of Christians who move toward people in that way. All right, here's a third lesson that we learn. A third lesson that we learn is that when we allow our prejudices to infiltrate our religion, we distort religion. When we allow for our biases, our prejudices to show up in our spirituality, I'm, I'm going to say this in a very, very strong way, but I think it's important you hear this. That's actually heresy. That's false 
teaching. When you say that in order to be a Christian, you must fill in the blank. It's always something that you do. You must think like me. You must vote like me. You must behave like me. You must interpret the world like I do. When you begin to say that that's what is required for somebody to be a good Christian, that's heresy because that's Jesus plus. That's saying Jesus isn't sufficient to save you. You also need this additional thing. That is not okay. It's all too easy to make our prejudices a key feature of our religion. A lot of times what we do is we feel so strongly about something and so therefore we wrap it up in a, in a you know, spiritual cloak and we say, look, I feel this way and this is actually a good thing. This is what Peter was doing. Verse 28, he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or even visit a Gentile. He took his bias and then he shrouded it in religion. And he said, look, this is just how it is. Good Jewish people do not associate with, they don't dine with, they don't spend time with Gentiles. We don't do that. And we say the same sort of things. We begin to tie on our biases to our spiritual experience. And we actually believe that our Christianity informs it. That's why we feel so strongly about it. We've read our Bibles and we believe certain things about the world, but, but let's be careful that we don't begin to view the world through our grid and be unwilling to change or revise as needed. So Peter goes on to say in verse 28, this is not the way of God. God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. As we think about those supposed en enemies of ours, we need to be careful. I mean, I, I believe that God is saying to us, don't do that. Do not call anyone impure or unclean. Be careful with your labeling of people who are different than you. So the third lesson is when we allow our prejudices to infiltrate our religion, we distort religion. Here's the fourth thing. The fourth lesson is that our prejudice actually threatens our engagement with God's mission. When we allow for our biases or our hatred of other peoples, we actually miss out on the mission opportunity that God has given us. So a lot is at stake here. A ton is at stake here. In fact, I was reading a couple articles recently and I was reminded of this fact that when Christians look and sound like the angry partisan world, it doesn't draw people to Christ. It actually repels them. When we sound exactly like the divided and hostile world that we're placed in right now, we're not winning people to Christ. By our behavior, we, we might actually be putting them off. That is a tragedy. So we need to be careful that our prejudices don't threaten our engagement with God's mission. Now in this case, in the first century, this was such an important turning point in the life of the church that it gets a lot of time. We'll look at it again next week. It shows up in chapter 15. This is the issue. Will Christianity put off these cultural expressions and allow for people from all nations to participate? Or will Christianity just be a religion in the Middle East? And if it weren't for their willingness to say, look, we are not going to force people to believe in Christ and become identical to us, the mission moved forward. We're here today because they were willing to say, 
the mission of Jesus Christ is worth our careful consideration, and we need to evaluate our prejudices that we have against people who are different from us. So we need to be careful about our biases because we could miss out on reaching people with the good news of the gospel. The gospel needs to go to the very ends of the earth, and it also needs to go to our neighborhood's back door, right? We need to be willing to meet people where they're at. And I was thinking this week, and, and it's just a thing that I've noticed of being in different places. I really think it's easier to love and serve people who are incredibly culturally different. So you go to a far off place and you're willing to make all kinds of adjustments for the sake of the mission. You're willing to inconvenience, inconvenience yourself and change and be careful with the things that you think and say in, in their you know, presence. It's really hard to think like a missionary in Roscoe, Illinois, with people who are similar to you geographically, but very different from you in other ways. We need to be the kind of Christians who say, look, I'm going to I'm going to allow God to inform the way that I interact with all people. All right, here's the fifth and final lesson. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is for all peoples. The good news of the gospel is for all peoples. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message of Jesus Christ. It's what Peter preaches when he gets to Cornelius' home. It's the message of Jesus Christ who offers peace in a hostile world. It's the message of Jesus Christ who was crucified and resurrected that the prophets all spoke of that said, by faith in him, you will receive forgiveness of sins. It's the message of Jesus Christ who God has said is the judge of the living and the dead. It is the invitation of God to believe in Christ for salvation. And that message is for all peoples, including Gentiles, including people that we don't like. It goes to people who are unlike us in many ways, and we need to be willing to say, along with Peter and others, who do I think I am that I would try to stand in God's way? This is how they respond in the next chapter, in verses 17 and 18. This is their interpretation of the events. They say, so if God gave them, the Gentiles, the same gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, if he gave them the same gift he gave us to believe, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they, were, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. The gospel message is a message that goes to everybody. And we need to be careful not to draw boundary lines that God has not drawn. So let's be the church and let's love people well and let's allow for the gospel to change us. And here's, I think, the proof of the gospel that shows up in our story. When you are changed by the gospel and you love and serve people who are very different from you, one of the evidences that that has really come home in your heart, that that prejudice has been dealt with, is when you're willing to practice hospitality with them. It happens in our story multiple times. Peter welcomes the visitors into the home of Simon the Tanner, and they share time together. And then at the very end of our story today, Peter asked, they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. There's hospitality. If you want to know that you're loving your enemy well, have them to your table. Spend time with them. Share a meal with them. Let them see that you value the good news of the gospel 
over anything else in the world. And you want other people to know and love that gospel also. So let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. Lord, right now, I'm praying that by your spirit, you would be doing a work in each of us, that you would be revealing anything that, that really is in discord with you. Any ideas where we're saying of people, I want nothing to do with them. I hate them. And you're speaking over us, do not call them something that, that I don't call them. Don't say that they are unclean. Don't say that anyone is unclean who I've made clean. God, we've got a lot of room to grow here and we're asking for your help. We're praying, God, that as the church, we could be a beautiful counter-reality to everything else that's going on in our world right now. I pray that we could be the kind of people that reveal Christ-likeness in this broken and hostile world and the tone and the candor and the love that we share reveals the beauty of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for that gospel. We thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves us and rescues us and reconciles us to other people who are different. Help us to embrace that reality in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.